Thank you. It's great to see all of you here. Um, it's phenomenal to be able to do this um, this inaugural lecture, and I. Yeah, this is a great opportunity because now for the next uh, 50 minutes, optimistic 50 minutes, so those of you who have been my students, you know that it's more like one hour and a half. Um, but for the next 50 minutes, uh, you, are, you are going to have to listen to what I say, um, which, is, which is part of, uh, of the privilege of being a professor. Um, and so when I was, when I was um, you know, uh, given the title of full professor and, and told that I had to do this inaugural lecture, I, I, kind of, I kind of stalled a little bit because it's never been really my plan to be a full professor. It's not part of, of the way I saw myself. Um, so it's kind of like a, really, a little bit of a silly thing to say today, but it was a, a moderate existential crisis. Like, what is it that, that sort of this full professorship means? And then I had to give a lecture, and, and the most terrifying thing I could imagine was to, to see all of you here, and then you had to, to listen to a lot of, of my, my own research for like 50 minutes, and I thought, you know, maybe the best way of, of addressing my crisis is to vent it out loud. So this talk, out of depth, it's actually the pathway through what what happened inside my head uh, when, when I became a full professor. So, so we are in for this sort of going into my head right. It's going to be fun or equivalent. Um, and in order to do that, I thought, well, we need a structure. We need, I need to tell you how things work inside my head in, in a little bit of a structured way so you don't get lost. And therefore, this is a talk or a lecture in three acts. I, I am very Aristotelian, so like three acts is the best, uh, and at the end everybody dies, and it's kind of very, very sorrowful. Nobody's going to die today, I promise. Um, so the first part is going to be about the job, uh, the second part is going to be about the work, and the third part is going to be about the title. And that's as much as I'm going to tell you right now. Um, so yeah, and hopefully by the end there's going to be time for questions, um, and this allows me to tell the... the the best anecdote I have of my, of my academic career, which is, or one of the best, which is when I was defending my PhD, um, it was a proper defense. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I spoke for an hour, and then we had like three committee members, and committee member number one, one hour of questions, and then committee member number two, one hour of questions, committee member number three, one hour of questions, and then as it is, you know, the usual format here in Denmark, then the, the chairperson of, of the event said, well, does anybody have any question? And then suddenly, someone, who now is one of my very good friends in academia, he raised his hand and said, like, I actually have a question about method. He's like, no, <laughs> really, seriously, after four hours. So, so that, was, um, that was okay. I mean, we, we became friends. Uh, took a, it took a brawl, but we became friends. So there's going to be time for questions if anybody has questions. Otherwise, uh, we can just talk at the, at the reception afterwards. Anyway, let me talk about the job. So this is the first part, the job. And so one of the interesting things about becoming a full professor is that um, this feels a little bit like getting an award. Not, not just a title, but an award. So, so, um, so this feels a little bit like, like the Academy Awards. And I, I, I feel like I should start by saying thank you to uh, many people. Um, I guess... Uh, I have to say gracias a los que estáis en España, en televisión, por ahí. ¡Papá, estoy en la tele! Eh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And I also have to say uh, thanks to my lovely family, Eine and Silas and Carlos, who are here and who are, uh, you know, just the best people to play with. So, so it is. I'm, I'm enormously lucky. And, and there's a lot of people I, I have to say thanks to. And I think part of it, it's, it's part of the job is to acknowledge this kind of uh, uh, thanks part. So it does feel like an award, and I guess at some moment, like in the like in the Oscars, the music is going to start playing, and somebody is going to come like, no, 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 go and go. But I need, I feel like I need to start with some kind of acknowledgement of of thanks. Um, but it's not a regular one because it's very much tied to the notion of professorship. I think. So. I feel like this is an award, and I feel like I should be saying thank you but not necessarily for the reasons a professorship or a professor, uh, uh, as I had understood it, might, might think. And that's because when I started thinking about, about the whole sort of becoming a full professor and what does it mean for me, I had to start thinking about what is a professorship. And so instead of defining things as what they are, I'm going to define them as what they are not, and I'm going to say what I am thankful for. So the first thing is that a professorship is not a single-player game. I wouldn't be here if it was for my colleagues at the Center for Digital Play now and before. Uh, I have the best colleagues in the world. They are absolutely crazy. They are all insane. They are weird, and I love them all. And it's no better place for me to work and come to work than the Center for Digital Play, and all the constructions I've been a part of for the last many years. So, so this is your fault. You know who you are, and this is your fault. And on the other side, um, that's a meme uh, made by one of my students, Alex Nygren, a couple of years ago, because it's also your fault, all of you here who are my students. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all the students from whom I learn more than I teach. Sorry, I shouldn't say this. In, this is, you, know, you haven't heard that in that corner down there. Um, it is a privilege for me to come every this semester, every Thursday to class, and to supervise, supervise my master's thesis students and learn from them. It's the best job in the world to talk to, to educate, to discuss, and to think through students. And I've been privileged to be able to do that for the last 16 years. There's some from my first cohort here, you know who you are, the sum from my last cohort here, and from, for all of you and to all of you, thank you so much. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So that's the first thing that a professorship is not. It's not a single player game. I, I got here thanks to all of these people. And then the second thing is a professorship is not, and this is I have to think uh, in terms of, of my own ego, and it's not a hero's journey. Right? It's, it's kind of like very simple to, to, it would be very easy for me to think right now, well, you know, I got here because I worked hard for all of these years. Yes, but not really. Or yes, but also. Um, I've been at the ITU officially employed for 20 years in September. I was here a year prior to that on some uh, Spanish scholarship money. So I feel very much like um, you know, I've been part of this institution for a while. But I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for these four people. Starting from my left now, uh, Jesper Juhl, 
who's in the audience somewhere. And Lisbeth Klastrup, they started studying games here at the ITU in a systematic way. And they were so good at doing so that they attracted Susanna Tosca, who's now a professor at uh, SDU. And at some moment back in time, a few years ago, all of these people were managed by Anke Helms Johansson. And I have to say a specific thanks to, to Anke, who's in the audience, because I look back 20 years and I think about who I was 20 years ago and the fact that you, know, you trusted on, on giving me a PhD scholarship, that was a leap of faith, so thank you. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. And also I also have to think and thank, sorry, not think but thank, I also have to thank both Espen Orseth, uh, first one on the right, and Charles S. in the middle who were my PhD supervisors. And for those of you who are taking uh, your PhD right now, you know, thank your supervisors, uh, because, uh, you know, I've, I've been, I was so unruly. The patience of these people, they was, that was just, uh, that was impressive. But they taught me what being an academic and scholar is, what good research is, and how I should be able not to just write, but also to talk about it to other people. And I would also like to thank T.L. Taylor, who was here, uh, an associate professor here at the ITU for many years, now she's at MIT, and uh, I would like to thank T.L. because Espen and Charles taught me a lot about the academic role of a scholar, but I learned from T.L. also the institutional and sort of social role of being an um, academic. So, so I think I've learned from all these people, and I keep on learning every time I have questions, I go back to like, how would some of these people solve or address these issues? So I am here thanks to them. It's not a hero's journey. Somebody at some moment supported me in critical ways. So I can only be thankful for that part of the job. And finally, in this part of the thanks uh, procedure, uh, and the last of these uh, sort of negative parts, a professorship is not an individual achievement. And I know that this is kind of weird to say when I'm the one here and you're all listening to me, but it's not an individual achievement. Or at least mine is not. I am super happy that I can show the chicken logo at the presentation. <laughs> um, my professorship, or the way I would like you to think about my professorship is not as my individual achievement, but as an institutional achievement. I've been here for 20 years, and it's true that I have written some stuff that some people have picked up. I have done some work that resonates uh, across many countries, but that work doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because you are at institutions that dare to think and dare to work in ways that support people like me and people like many of you in the audience. Being here is not a success of the work I did, but the work I did at an institution, at an institution with a particular set of values, with a particular set of ideas, and with a particular daring way of being extraordinary. And it's not just my colleagues, not only the ones I work with immediately, but many of you with whom I'm friends, and it's, it's just lovely, and you're all lovely, uh, but it's an institution. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the economy department or research support, or the IT department, or FM, who set up all of these things, communications. This 
professorship is a result of a lot of people working in roughly the same direction. So I cannot take credit for being here as an individual success. I hope that I am just a success of an institution. And that said, what is the job then? So if a professorship is not all of those things, what is then the job? I now can write on my email um, that I'm a full professor in digital play. What does it mean? So I've used this negative way of thinking to try to frame what the job actually means or what I want to do with the job. And if I look at this history, the first word that popped up in my head, in my mind, was trust. This institution trusted that things could be done differently and that people like me with a background in literature could actually think and teach about video games and digital play. Individuals trusted on what I could do. So maybe trust is the right way of, of framing what the job of being a professor is. Not really, nope. Because um, trust is not really, it doesn't cover what I think it's the core of the job of being a professor in an institution. So what I think the job of being, or my job as a full professor is, um, comes across as very worthy, but I hope it's not. I think my job is to make the possible and to make it possible. I have to think that to be a full professor is to think about what are the possibilities ahead of us and how can I make them possible. The possibilities in research, what are the things that would be exciting to think through and reflect upon and then do that research. Alone or together, it doesn't really matter. It's also a matter of what could it be possible to teach and to learn and to make that possible for students to come here and learn from us that, you know, by the end of the day, learning is all about learning to dare to formulate the possible and to act on it. And so that's what I think this job is. And it comes with a... Um, Big burden, I think, but it also comes with like a lot of promise. Let's face it, I actually do love my job. So I'm not going to hear complain or say that this is a lot of work and so on. This is the most exciting job I could imagine having. Working with possibility, the possibility, thinking about the possibilities and making them happen. There is nothing better in the world than that. It does come with some responsibilities, uh, and I know that by being uh, appointed as a full professor, I also have to live up to those responsibilities. But as the poet said, I can guarantee you now on my uh, inaugural lecture that I am never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you down. <laughs> I'm never going to run around and desert you. <laughs> All right, so that's what I think the job is. Um, but I also got here, so, so once, I, once I realized, okay, so it's, it's not that tricky to be a full professor, it's basically do what I did before, just with a new job description. Um, then I thought, okay, I'm also, I also have an audience, right? So now after um, almost 20 minutes of people talking, you still have sort of only a vague idea of what I do. Uh, 
I also only have a vague idea of what I do, and that's why I think I am so, so in, you know, that's why I think I, I can do some things. Um, so I thought, well, you know, now that I have a captive audience here, and now that many of you have taken uh, the time, which I really appreciate, to uh, come here and listen to me, maybe I should give you something to go back and, and explain. Well, I, I spend a whole hour on Friday listening to somebody who does research. What does this person research about? Uh, I don't really know. So now I'm going to give you the description of the work. So what kind of work do I do? What kind of research do I do? I guess I have to also explain that I'm not just uh, you know, making jokes and funny slides, but that I also work. So this is going to be about my research work. However, it's not going to be about what I did. I don't care about what I did. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm re really happy for it. I'm very proud of the work that I did in the past. But, um, you know, the past is gone. I'm very much more interested in what I like doing now. What is it that I'm doing now? And this, uh, this lecture, or, or this inaugural lecture, has been a great excuse for me to try to put in perspective what kind of research am I going to be doing. And this is great because... Um, as maybe some of you who, who have been in my classes know, I, I do a lot of thinking out loud and in public. So a lot of the research I do happens first in the classroom, and then sometimes you can see me thinking about the, the stuff that then I'm going to, to, to write about. And so what I'm going to present now is the work that I will be doing, and this has two functions. First, I'm going to think it out loud, uh, so, so I'm going to develop it as I speak, which is very much the way I teach and the way I think. And second, now I'm committing myself to do that work, which is really good because I have, uh, I have an attention span that means that in 10 minutes I will think that something else is totally more interesting and I will lose focus. So this is like now I'm on record saying that this is the work that I'm going to do. So one of the things um, that I would like to highlight in the work that I'm doing now is that for the first time in... I think most of my academic career, my research is based on collaboration. So like I'm, I'm a classically trained humanist, so I work alone. Like the existence of other people is fascinating, uh, but I work alone. Or I did work alone for many, many years. And I guess for the past four or five years, I've actually enjoyed, which is terrible because now that I think about it, I discovered the pleasures of collaboration thanks to the pandemic that locked us all out. So um, there's some kind of like, I don't think in the right way. That's, I just realized that's kind of a very weird thing to have done. But anyway, all of the research that I'm doing now is part of collaboration processes. And I think it's great because it's part of um, learning from other people. Uh, I am, for the time being, done of thinking everything in my head and writing it alone. Everything is going to be now about collaboration. So that's one of the red threads that illustrates my work. And so I'm going to highlight three research projects that I'm currently uh, working on, um, and they are all in collaboration, uh, almost all in collaboration with some people. So some of you uh, probably know that I have a, a history in game studies. Um, so for a long period of time, I studied games. I, in 2011, and starting in 2011, I started thinking that play was way more interesting, so I should study play instead of games. And so um, I've kind of abandoned the study of games. But about a year ago, um, an idea that, I, that had been lurking in my head for a very, very, very long time 
finally settled, and I thought, I'm going to, maybe this is, this is the exclusive news, like I'm, I'm coming back to game studies. I'm going to do games again, um, just for the time being. Because I thought, you know, now, now that I'm of that particular age, you know, very late 30s, very consolidated in my career, um, maybe it is time to actually spend a little bit of my hours in researching the only game that I truly care about. Um, and so I reached out uh, to a friend and together we decided, hey, you know what? We are going to write a book about football. So this is a collaborative project uh, I have with my good friend from uh, SDU, Bo Kaman Walter, and we are writing a book about the game of football. And none of you is on the joke, but I really hope, Bo, that you are following this online, and if you're not, there's a recording, and this is great. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, Bo is very well known uh, in football circles for being an enormously big Real Madrid fan. So, of course, I had to present publicly our project with that image. Um, so anyway, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a games scholar originally, and so part of what we, I think, did in game studies, what many people have done in game studies for many years, was develop a vocabulary to try to understand what games are and how can we think through games. And we've applied that to video games mostly, and now we are starting to apply that to board games. And then there's this other segment out there called sports, which we don't look at. Yes, they're also games, but actually they are sports. They have a different name. We don't, we don't necessarily look at them. They are, you know, nope. They, they involve other things. We're not going to look at them. It's, it's an unfair characterization, but you know what I mean. It's, we'd, rather, we'd rather write about World of Warcraft than about uh, football. So I thought, you know, it would be fun to write. What have we learned from games in game studies that we can use to try to understand the game of football? So the whole project of the loss of the game is to take key concepts in game studies and game design research and try to apply them to better understand how football works. So we are really just looking at the game of football through the lens of game studies. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of um, the work that we are doing. So these are, are samples of chapters that I'm currently writing about how can we think about football from a game studies perspective. And so the first, uh, the chapter that I'm writing now, and this is also guilting myself into writing this chapter finally, because it's been, it's been on my computer for a long time and it needs to be finished. But in football, we have this, uh, sorry, in game design, we have this concept of possibility space or space of action. So when you think about um, any game as a game designer, part of what the rules and the mechanics do is to generate a possibility space. All the possible actions that are executable within the frame of the rules by any kind of player, human or not. And so I think this is a fascinating concept that we sometimes uh, perhaps drop too casually and we don't think through uh, um, too much. So how can we use the concept of possibility space in football and what does football teach us about the concept of possibility space? So again, we start with the idea that the rules and what we can do in a game shape a possibility space. And then when we play a game, what we are doing as players is 
perceive a possibility space. So we have basically two spaces of possibility. One is the formal one, defined by the game as designed, and then there's another one which is the experiential one, the one that we as players experience. Great games manage to be designed in such a way that the perceived space matches very well with the space of possibility. Then they are fun. When a great game designer does a good job, there's a really interesting match between those two things. Fun games are those games in which we can perceive these possibility spaces uh, in such a way that we feel that we can act and play and have fun in the ways that we want to do. And then comes football. So football is regulated by a number of corrupt organizations. Oh, sorry, a number of organizations. Um, see, now we are not going to get another World Cup. That's uh, terrible. It's regulated by a number of organizations. Uh, and this, one of these organizations is in charge of um, controlling the rules, the loss of the game. And from a classic game design perspective, we would say, OK, so the loss of the game are the possibility space as designed, and then when people play, um, that's the perceived possibility space. But in professional football, we have things like that. This is a very short video from um, a documentary on Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. And yes, Bo, it had to be Pep Guardiola. You know that. I'm just, I'm just enjoying this a little bit too much. Today, the boys so I'm, right now you are all like a Kun Aguero, the Argentinian player in the first row, thinking like, <laughs> what? Some of you might be like uh, Kevin De Bruyne, who's on the third row, uh, knees up, and then like thinking yet another pep talk. I don't understand anything. This, I saw this segment and then I thought, what is Guardiola doing there? And that's a fascinating thing about thinking about the possibility space through football. So what coaches do is actually take the design possibility space and narrow it down so their squad can play the game. So what we have in football is this unique position of the coach who interprets a possibility space is not a player in the classic sense. It's not a game designer in the classic sense. It's more like an intermediary. Given all these rules, this is how you're going to play. This is your possibility space. Those two guys are very fast. They're going to run in this channel, close this channel. In football, there's this third position, which is highly ambiguous. And in all professional sports, highly ambiguous position. We don't really know. Uh, how to, how to define it, which is basically tasked with limiting the space of possibility in an already designed game for players. We don't have that in many other games. And so when you are Pep Guardiola, a football pitch looks like that. That is how a coach perceives a possibility space. And seeing this, I do understand uh, Kun Agüero, the way he was looking at the screen, because this is very obtuse. But actually, what he's basically doing is saying, in all of these spaces, in all of these areas, this is the space of possibility, act in these particular ways, and you, know, you will succeed. So that's what the concept of a space of possibility shows us, except 
except, you know, Messi. I'm sorry, Bo, but you just have to do it. Um, why is Messi great? What is the greatness of a player? If football was like a more formalized sport, less stochastic, less random, Pep would tell people what to do, and then they would move like in chess, and they would win. That's roughly what's happening this year, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, Messi sees spaces of possibility that were not charted before. What we do when we are playing is not only perceive spaces of possibility, but sometimes when we are great at it, generating spaces of possibility, ways of doing things that nobody had noticed before. So we can explain the greatest athletes by seeing how they invent new possibility spaces. So all the greats in all the sports, from Messi to LeBron to, I don't know who's popular in, in baseball, to somebody, um, they all invent new possibility spaces. And so that's what this work allows me uh, to think about. Um, and this is great because now I have a captive audience, so I'm going to keep on talking about football. Um, another idea that we're working through in this book is the notion of uh, platform capitalism and football. So platform capitalism and football, uh, the concept of platform capitalism, very, very quickly introduced, is an idea that uh, Nick Slyshek uh, proposed. And he basically argues that in this stage of digital capit capitalism, everything is... Uh, contained in platforms. So, you know, all of our shopping and our internet goes through Amazon, all of our uh, mundane computing goes through Apple. Um, when we play video games, we are not necessarily playing video games, we are engaging with a platform that also offers a game. You can call it Minecraft, you can call it Roblox, you can call it Fortnite. The idea is that there is not... Uh, what The way we interact with uh, producers of content is uh, as platforms. So this idea of platforms as content producers that, that vertically integrate all forms of uh, value generation, we thought it was really interesting and we thought, can we, can we apply it to football? And so this is a video of uh, Real Madrid's new stadium, which will open uh, in, the, um, in the autumn of next year. Um, and so the fascinating thing about this is that they've literally turned their stadium into a platform. Um, you can, you can, you know, they put all the grass down in those silos, uh, totally creepy silos. That's like uh, the other places. Um, and then you can cover the, the floor and you can turn a football stadium into a very exciting test center, I guess. Or you can turn it into suddenly two different sports, uh, basketball and tennis. Uh, or you can even have concerts. The football stadium, which used to be the identity of a particular side or part of the city, has slowly become more than that. It's become a platform where you consume content, owned by a, a football club, but not anymore dedicated to football. It contains uh, concerts, it contains um, uh, social events, it can become a, a place for uh, uh, different kinds of, of social gatherings. It's not anymore just a football stadium. The transition we are witnessing now in, in, at the top of the game with the mega clubs is that they are not anymore clubs. 
They are not just companies. They are platforms. They want you to buy into their platform, and they are going to sell all of their assets as platforms. First people who jumped onto uh, NFTs, football companies or football clubs. Those, uh, that's a um, commercial for an ill-fated NFT series connected to the Spanish league. Um, that didn't go that very well. But again, it's not about the club. It's about selling content. You are not anymore a fan of a club. You are actually a fan of a platform. Every year, we have to buy a new kit. When I was a kid, I had one Barcelona t-shirt, which was the same from whatever, 88 to 92, something like that. Um, same color, same everything. Those are all the Barcelona kits from 1994 to 2016. Every year, we get a new kit. Every season, we get a new skin, and we buy it. We tend to think about football and football clubs as some kind of cultural institutions, and it's all a lie. They are economic platforms. The best way for us to understand Real Madrid, Bayern München, Barcelona, Manchester City, is to think them in the same lines of Roblox or Fortnite or Minecraft. They operate in exactly the same way. Part of their product is play, but a lot of it is not play. It's concerts, it's events, it's uh, a platform of leisure. So that's what we are going to be writing about. Part one of my research. And now I can see that I have 10 minutes and I have two other areas of research that I want to show you, which is a classic, I guess, um, for those, yeah, well, that's, it happens to me. So another thing that I'm very interested in is software in general. And this is a, perhaps the oldest of the projects here. It's been going on for now three years, at least four years maybe. Um, and it's probably the, the project that I'm, I'm having um, the most fun doing because it's, it's, uh, it, I've, I also started making things and, and that's always very rewarding. So I have this project together with Irina Sklosky, Christina Nohmeyer, who some were there, and the PlayLab crews. Um, so play, the PlayLab crews, for those who don't know, I have a course called PlayLab, uh, runs every uh, autumn semester on the games program and um, I try to convince the students that let's make ridiculous software as a way of critical thinking. Um, and so this project uh, starts with the assumption that all software, is, all software is ridiculous, but some of it is useful. And back in the day, it all started with me accessing the uh, app store and seeing that this is what you could get as an app. And I'm, don't get me wrong, a number of people will probably get a lot out of these apps, but um, one is a heart rate tracker for everybody, another one is about uh, birthing, uh, using um, machine learning and, and sound recognition to listen to the birds. Uh, the one on top, uh, I can't even remember what the one on top is, it's kind of like very funny. Um, and Mind Llama is a meditation app, and I, you know, I realized back in the day that we have these devices, which are nothing short of magic, um, and we are using them for the most silly things ever. You know, we, we, we go around like this all the time in our lives, and we are doing it, uh, we, are, we are using them um, basically to engage with absolutely ridiculous software, and we are, um, we are doing it in, in kind of this very serious way. So I thought, you know what? 
why don't we just embrace the ridiculousness of, of this faith we have in software and uh, why don't we just make ridiculous software? Um, there's a lot of theory behind it. It has to do with the notions of rituals and play and humor. But I thought that before I punish you with um, more theory, I'm just going to do a quick demonstration because it's always good to have sort of interactive-ish lectures. So I'm going to show you what I mean by ridiculous software by showing you a very old app and a very new app that is not published yet. And now it's when technology needs to work. Are you going to work? You are going to work. This is great. Now you can see my phone, which is kind of very embarrassing. Hopefully nothing will happen. Okay, so I'm going to show you, probably not, I'm very proud of this one. Probably not is the only app that uses machine learning, that statistics-based machine learning, that it's 100% accurate. Um, and that's because uh, it, it's, about, it, uh, it's, a, it's an object recognition, image recognition uh, app. And instead of saying, you know, that, that what things are, it tells you what things are probably not. Uh, and therefore, because it's always wrong, it's always accurate. Uh, and that is perhaps the only way of, of doing accuracy. So this bouquet of flowers, for example, is probably not, don't crash on me now, because it's my lecture. I'm, I'm talking to my phone. There you go. It's probably not a restaurant. So if any of you is waiting for your orders, I'm sorry, this is not a restaurant, in case you were in doubt. And then another, another classic um, that I like doing is like now that I have my, ooh, this is going to be dangerous because I have like shiny stuff. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, let's see who I am not or what I'm not today. I am not a banjo. Okay, so well, that's a, in case you were concerned that I was a banjo, no, you are not listening to a lecture given by a banjo. It might sound like it, but not. So this is one of the ways in which I thought, you know, it will be, it will be fun to make fun of the notion of accuracy in um, machine vision and how the only way it's always right is by being always wrong. Um, and so, so, you know, that was one of the funny things. And then the other one that I find fascinating, and this is the, this is the you know, the premiere of a new ridiculous software app. Um, that's a screenshot from a website called thispersondoesnotexist.com, which generates plausible faces of humans, um, you know, in real time. So it's like that, that person does not exist, but it could exist. And I can easily imagine that, that when I say that, some of you might feel like an existential pang inside. Hold on, um, have I been created? Am I, do I exist? <laughs> we aim to please. Um, so in Ridiculous Software, come on, you have to work now. We are, I'm very happy to introduce um, Existential Check, <laughs> which is an app that allows you to take a selfie so you can check whether you exist or not. So let me just see. Um, I'm going to, I, I really hope I exist, because otherwise, otherwise there's an opening of a full professor at the ITU <laughs> if I don't exist. So like, let me just see, uh, do I exist? Now I can feel it, yes, I exist, <laughs> woo, success. I, uh, I was, for a second, I was, I was concerned there. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's fun to make fun. And, and there's a lot of ideas about this, but I thought, you know, if you want to talk about the ideas behind this project, let's just do it at the reception. Finally, um, the last thing that I want to talk about, uh, about my research, has to do with ethics. Because as much as I also, I want to go back to game studies through football, 
I also want to go back to the ethics of technology. I've never really left, but I want to go back in, um, in a particular uh, fashion. I really want to do some research in the coming years about the ethics of technology and more specific, specifically the ethics of generative AI. Um, and this is a field that's enormously popular now, and a lot of people are writing extremely clever things about it. So when I look at the field, um, I think, what, how can I contribute to all of this work about regulation and technology and, and artificial intelligence? Um, and I realized that there's actually something I want to say. And what I want to do, what I want to develop in the next few years is a lauded ethics of technology. And even though I promised that this would be sort of all, all about collaboration, I haven't found anybody to work on this project with. So if anybody finds this interesting, yes, there's people. Okay, that's great. Then we'll talk afterwards. Um, okay, so very quickly, because this is this. Um, I just got a, uh, an, uh, a long abstract, an extended abstract, accepted on this idea. So it's kind of that's where the the project is right now. Um, I should start by introducing very quickly the luddites, the luddites. Um, See, this word is terrible for Spanish people like me because we pronounce all in Spanish way, and like I have no idea. So I'm going to mispronounce it in different ways uh, throughout, throughout the rest of the next five minutes. So the Luddites uh, were a group of workers who, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in England, decided to destroy machines as a way of protesting the automation of work. Um, they lost. Uh, sorry, no spoilers alert, but they lost. Um, and ever since, the word Luddit has been used in a very particular way as people who hate technology. However, there's a revival of, of Luddit uh, research right now. There's a couple of books published in the past few years on going back to the history of the Luddits. There's a new book uh, coming out, Blood in the Machine, by Brian Merchant, who's also going to do a, a revisiting of the Luddits. And one of the interesting things is that, because history is written by the winners, the history of the Luddit movement has been considered to be the history of these cavemen who went to the machines and destroyed them because they wanted to still work for 16 hours down in the mines and, and breathing coal. And, you know, that's not progress. But actually, most of the Luddit movement was motivated by not hatred to the machine, but hatred to what the machine implies. The machine implied that they would not only lose the dignity of work, but also the social fabric of their lives. They would also be discounted as skilled people. They were not involved in how the machines were implemented or designed or put into the workshops. They were made redundant, and they, by doing so, they were, they were made inhuman. They were deprived of their humanity, and that's why they destroyed the machines. So what does this have to do with the current world? Yes, of course. Like everybody else, I'm moderately concerned about generative AI. ChatGPT, stable diffusion, all of these things. Um, Am I afraid they are going to gain uh, sentience? Not really. Uh, my autocorrect uh, on my phone is the best example why we shouldn't be afraid of these generative uh, uh, large language models. That afraid of them, at least. I, I'm more afraid of two things. I'm afraid of people. I'm very seldom afraid of technology, but I'm, I'm afraid of people with technology. And I'm very concerned about the fact that while we are very aware in research and industry, concerns 
uh, and, and, and um, uh, worlds that these tools are ethically questionable. We just put them out there. Four months ago, look, this is ChatGPT. Deal with it. Look, this is stable diffusion. Deal with it. All of the work we do in ethics and AI has to do with mitigation, with regulation. But by the end of the day, we have to deal with ChatGPT out in the wild. We have to deal with uh, tools that can do deep fakes out in the wild. And as an ethicist, I should think, besides all the work on regulation, besides all the work on deep biasing, what can we do in our daily lives? How should we act? We should all be ludists. We should all understand which technologies empower us and which technologies disempower us. And those who do not consider our humanity should be broken. I know, I'm not telling you, you know, go out and take a computer and throw it out the window. We shouldn't be violent like the Luddites were. We should be cleverly violent. Prompt injections. Some of you will know what prompt injections are. This is a particular attack on large language models that forces them to say what they are not allowed to say, rendering them effectively useless, because you don't really want your ChatGPT-based uh, uh, chatbot to become suddenly very racist, or very sexist, or very ableist, or all of them at the same time. And then you're in trouble. Prompt injections are studied in information security as something that we should identify and patch. Part of my work, I hope, maybe, will take me in the direction of prompt injections is one way we should learn how to deal with these technologies. We should develop tactics that allows us to break technologies in ways that remind us of our own humanity and our own presence in the world. In other words, Breaking things is all right. <laughs> so, you know, let's break some things. And that's what I'm, that, in an ethical way, I should say that. And I'm doing many, many more things, but I'm running out of time. I just want to sort of quickly say that I'm also writing about generative AI and play things with Yichin, who I think is also in the audience, maybe or not. I want to write about cybernetics and play with Bart Simon. And I also want to research and playful programming with coding parents. And there's so many exciting things in the world that I really want to do. And I don't know if I have time, like, for example, finishing this lecture. Um, and then I come to the last part of, of, of this presentation, which is the title. So I titled this Out of Depth. And most of my recent students probably know where it comes from. But thinking about my job and my work, I also try to think about what is it that I actually do? What does a professor of digital play do? And who better to explain what a professor of digital play does than David Bowie? So this is um, something that explains um, what I do. This is an interview that Bowie gave where, when he was at, where he was asked, um, can you give any advice to artists? And so this is the advice he gives. If you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're not working in the right area, always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being. Go a little bit out of the depth. And when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. So, so let me share a secret. 
Now that we've been together for an hour, I, I guess we can, we can just talk secrets, right? This is my title. I guess I'm from today on, I'm a professor of digital play. And the title contains a little trick. Because when I say this, most people think that I study digital play. But actually, play is not an object of study. In my work, play is a method. I see my work as engaging with the world, engaging with this fantastic world of technologies, with this fantastic computational information age, and play. Do play with it. Engage with it to play. Because the role of a professor of digital play, the role of a teacher of digital play, is not to know what I do. I don't care about knowing what I do. The role is to play so much that everything I do keeps me out of depth. And that's exactly where I am now. I think I feel I'm totally out of depth, and I'm just about to do something exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, no, I'm not going to do it. Thank you, thank you.